0: just 24 hours 48 mate it says there and put it out for just 20 20- <laughs> said it again <laughs> and put it out for just 20 20- what is wrong with me standard issue for all women hello and welcome to episode 153 of the standard issue podcast i'm hannah dunleavy and how in effin and jeffin god is it may i don't know I can remember being in my house in January and just thinking, I can't see the future. I'm stuck in my house again forever. And suddenly it's May. It is May. We're still sort of stuck in our houses, though. Yeah, but I can't believe it's been so long since the last time we were shut in our houses again. The passage of time. It is. Yeah. Long. That's very erudite, yeah. I know.
1: Thanks. On a more positive note, I'm Jen Offord, yeah. and last week, Sue Pollard complimented my daughter's style. I,
0: <laughs> I want to be pleased for you, but in many ways, it's like an insult, right? Because
1: she was dressed like a fucking lunatic that day as well. I have seen a photo. <laughs> she was looking very bright indeed. I bumped into Sue in the shop. And I said hello to her, and because I was pregnant when I interviewed her last year, so I was a bit like, so that's what happened. And she was like, "Oh, oh I love what she's wearing." <laughs> did she have a Christmas bow in her? Hair? Lyra or Sue? Either of them. Uh, I don't know if Sue did. The main thing, the main takeaway from Sue, is that she had a little handbag that was a child's bag that was in the shape of a dinosaur, yeah. and it was like green and sort of slightly pearlescent looking it was uh yeah it was it was amazing
0: a friend of mine told me he was in a queue once for a taxi and he'd waited in the queue for a taxi for ages the taxi pulled up in the rank and he was at the front the door opened and sue pollard whizzed past him and got in it not i think because she was pushing him but because i just think sue pollard is the leader of a lost tribe of one? I don't think she like necessarily notices everything that's going on around her. Let's say that. And I said, Did you say anything? And he said, I was completely side swiped by her sartorial weirdness.
1: Always <laughs> in said, a fascinator. All
0: I went was, What is she wearing? And then my his
1: taxi just disappeared and he had to wait for the next one. Always in a fascinator. Love it. Always later on. Mix had a Zoom date with Holly McNish to talk poetry, prose, masturbation, grief and her brilliant new book, Slug. I talked to Julie Geary,
0: writer and creator of new Sky One sci-fi series, Intergalactic, about a
1: feminist con air and women in sci-fi. Wowzers. In Journey Off The Blocks, I'll be talking about the unstoppable Katie Taylor. I like Katie Taylor. I know you do, mate. And
0: in Rated Or Dated, Jen made me watch 1986's Top Gun. Nuff said sorry <laughs> yeah <laughs> enough said from me that is but first there's too much news time for the bush telegraph cue sting bush. telegraph
1: welcome to the bush telegraph where we look at the news with bewilderment and horror like tony blair's post-lockdown barber oh my god that was so <laughs> so
0: awful Our friend Kelly Wells (laughs) tweeted a picture of him and a picture of Les from the League of Gentlemen with just the word shit business in it. (laughs) And it made me laugh for about four hours.
1: As I said to you, Hannah, in a rare example of Twitter being good, Peter Stringfellow was (laughs) (laughs) trending. So it's been a busy
0: week, which means there's a couple of stories I'd like to talk about that I haven't got time for. First up, the resignation of Arlene Foster as leader of the DUP and Northern Ireland's First Minister. What I can say about that though is if you're interested in what's what and what it might mean going forward for relations within Northern Ireland, between Northern Ireland and Westminster and between Northern Ireland and the Republic, the Irish Times did a really interesting podcast about it interviewing Sam McBride, author of a book about the DUP cash for ash scandal. So do seek that out. Next up in the things I'd love to give more time to is Julia James, killed while walking her dog near Dover last week. The murder of the 53-year-old mother, grandmother and PCSO hasn't gained anywhere near the media coverage or the public interest that the recent murder of Sarah Everard did. And the cynical part of me believes it's because of those words, mother, grandmother and PCSO. Mm -hmm. But every woman murdered is a tragedy and our thoughts and condolence to Julia's family, friends and colleagues. Yeah. Lastly, in the list of things that I'd like to have more time on is the latest developments in the case of Nazanin zaghari Ratcliffe, the British-Iranian held for the last five years in Iran on what I can only describe as totally false grounds of spying. The UK and Iran are reportedly now in discussions over that £400 million debt that the UK owes Iran – but the talks are not, according to Foreign Minister James Cleverley, linked to the detention of Zagari Radcliffe. Now, I can totally understand why he would say that, even if they were. So let's just say there might be cause for hope and we will definitely bring you more on that story soon. So, all of that aside, what the fuck am I talking about this week? Massive sigh, No, clark. Oh, no. The Met Police confirm they have received a third-party report relating to allegations of sexual offences by a man following recent claims against actor and director Noel Clarke. An investigation by The Guardian last week revealed that 20 women had accused Clarke of sexual harassment and bullying. The MEP said they received the report on the 21st of April and officers were assessing the information, but there was no current investigation, although it's probably wise to make clear here that third-party reports are anonymous, meaning they can't be investigated, although the information can be used to verify other claims made against alleged offenders. Also, in the interest of fairness, I need to say that Clark, quote, vehemently denies any claims. Although the Guardian reports that six more people had come forward with claims of misconduct, including former students at the London School of Dramatic Art. The revelations about Clark put two organizations in a somewhat tricky situation. Firstly, ITV, whose five-part series Viewpoint, starring Clark, was four episodes in when the story broke leading them to pull the final instalment from the terrestrial channel and put it out for just 48 hours on the ITV hub, which was clearly an improvement on pulling it all together and ruining the hard work of the likely hundreds of people involved in the project. However, it did mean that anyone who was too busy, had shit Wi-Fi, or like some elderly people I know, don't understand how to use the ITV hub, had invested four hours in a drama they couldn't find out the resolution of. It also put BAFTA in a mm. difficult position, having recently given Clark a Lifetime Achievement Award, despite the fact that between announcing the award and handing it out, they received an email from three named sources claiming they had heard first-hand accounts from women about Clark's behaviour and saying BAFTA would be, quote, remiss not to do its own due diligence on this matter, as it seems the numerous allegations are a well-known secret within the wider industry. BAFTA also received two anonymous emails alleging sexual misconduct by Clark, although I think it's important to point out here that if the police are unable to act on anonymous emails, BAFTA's not really in a position to conduct its own inquiry. This story absolutely still has legs, though, and has spun out to include questions about the case of Adam Deacon, Google it, and the behaviour of Clark and co-star John Barrowman, on the set of Doctor Who. It's not often I'll give such a full throated endorsement of the Guardian's reporting, but here it is. If you want to know more about any of this, you
1: know where to go. Yeah, absolutely meticulously researched. So Yeah Well done. Yeah. They did a fantastic job on that. Mm. What a horrible, horrible story. It just keeps happening. No. It just keeps happening. It's just it's so it's just depressing, isn't it, to know that these these people exist and are known to lots of people and yet nothing happens nothing no action is taken maybe someone says well we won't work with them again but then it's just but we're not gonna try and stop them working you know what i mean like it's 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 just so depressing the lack of regard that people apparently have for well women (laughs) so
0: predominantly women i mean i would note that the The six new people that have come forward, the Guardian, have used the word people, which suggests that at least one of them is a man. I think that's probably the bullying element of it. But yeah, yeah, not great. And
1: predominantly women, as you are. Correct. Well, some more depressing news for you. According to 2018 research by Embrace UK, that's mothers and babies reducing risk through audits and confidential inquiries, not the band. Black British women are five times more likely than white women to die in childbirth. That sounds like quite a big disparity, doesn't it? Here are some more. Black babies are twice as likely to be stillborn, meaning that they're not alive when they're delivered, and a 45% increased risk of neonatal death, meaning that a baby dies within 28 days of birth. Asian women are twice as likely to die in childbirth as white women and Asian babies have a 60% increased risk of stillbirth or neonatal death. Still, it's just as well we're not institutionally racist in the UK, isn't it? These statistics are not new. As I said, it's a 2018 study. One added to that horrific list last week is that the risk of miscarriage for pregnant black women is 43% higher than it is for white women, according to research conducted by the Lancet Medical Journal. The reason for this isn't 100% clear, though we do know that black people are at higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes and heart disease, which in themselves can increase the risk of miscarriage. However, scientists who conducted the research said they were investigating whether other health issues, such as fibroids and autoimmune disorders, could be linked to the higher rates, and they added that further research was desperately needed. The number of pregnancies resulting in miscarriage is generally high. Estimates put it at about 15%. 1% of women will experience recurring miscarriage, something that will not be investigated further until a woman has experienced three miscarriages, which is a fucking lot, isn't it, to go through before Mm. any answers are given. But anyway, as well as that lack of clinical diagnosis, countless women describe a lack of support and being told that they can just try again. The report also found that women who miscarry are at significantly increased risk of depression and suicide. And what about the rates of miscarriage in other ethnic minority women? Well, the article in The Lancet doesn't address that directly and the statistics in the appendix only include figures for black women and Asian women so we can only tell you it's lower than black women but not if it is higher than in white women and if so, how much higher? It's not just the link between ethnicity and increased risk that needs to be researched, the study found ruling that the lack of medical progress should be shocking and yet...
0: It's difficult, isn't it? Because although I agree that institutional racism may be behind this, Mm. I would also like someone to do some investigation into the possibility that there are other things because there's so little research done into women's bodies that throwing your hand up and saying, well, it's just institutional racism. What's to be done? Isn't really the answer when it could be like you say yeah. there could be links to diabetes that they should be studying they they should be putting the effort in to find out what it is because some of this might be medical problems if investigating it could stop one woman having a miscarriage that she doesn't need to have then they need to look into that too
1: Absolutely then again i guess like there's maybe some questions about why are black people more predisposed to type 2 diabetes and heart disease like it's it, it's kind of never well, exactly. ending isn't research it? that too yeah.
0: yeah but it's just particular we know they don't put much effort into finding out things about women's bodies so i do do think
1: there is a little bit of i mean it shouldn't be the case with miscarriages because obviously by that point the the worst that can happen has happened but i think with pregnancy and stuff it's like when you're pregnant the medication basically everything says you shouldn't take it if you're or you should talk Mm. to a doctor before you take it if you're pregnant or breastfeeding and that's not because they know that it could be bad it's because they can't they haven't done the research, so they can't tell you definitively yeah. that it's not bad. And I guess the point with that is it's quite hard to do the research because how many pregnant women would go? Oh, I'll be the guinea pig. <laughs> like, you yeah, know, exactly sign me that. up. So I do think there is a, a, a slight difficulty in that. But no, of course, in general, they're absolutely dog shit at, at taking anything to do with women's health seriously. Really. So yeah, okay. I'm not going to even ask if you want some good news,
0: Jen. I'm just going to assume it's a yes. Fair assumption. Here goes, Caroline Norton who found herself part of one of the most famous court cases of the 19th century and went on to campaign for rights for separated women, has finally been recognised with a heritage blue plaque in London. In that famous case, Norton, who was trapped in an abusive marriage, was found innocent of adultery with the then Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne. Nonetheless, she was thrown out by her husband, George, and prevented from having contact with her three sons, all of whom were under the age of seven at the time. He also continued to benefit from her earnings as a writer. Wow. Fucking hell.
1: I thought this was good news.
0: (laughs) But rather than give up, Norton campaigned and as a result, mothers were eventually granted custody of children under seven in cases of divorce and separation and access to older children. If you want to know more about the incredible life of Norton, you can read her biography, written by Lady Antonia Fraser, who last week unveiled the plaque outside the Mayfair house in which Norton lived and campaigned after being removed from her marital home. Hooray, when we're allowed out in the real world again, Jim, we can go and have a look at that. (laughs) Oh, good. Don't forget to vote on Thursday,
1: people. And more news probably on that next week. Well,
2: you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? sexism
1: of the week another day another dead woman another killer of dead woman given a big cuddle by the judicial system of england and wales in this case that killer is 70 year old anthony williams who strangled his wife ruth to death at a south wales home he was cleared of her murder at trial in february but jailed for manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility which he admitted to We've talked about this on the podcast before, but for anyone unaware of the case, Williams snapped, apparently, after a period of depression and anxiety caused by coronavirus restrictions, a court was told. Of course, we are very aware of the mental health problems exacerbated by the UK lockdowns of the last year. They certainly seem to take their toll on Mr Williams between the announcement of the first lockdown on the 23rd of March 2020 and the killing of Ruth on March the 28th, five days later. But it was not a case of domestic abuse the Court of Appeal found after his sentence of five years was challenged last week. That's right, a year for every day of his torment in lockdown. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. The Attorney General's office said the sentence was unduly lenient, and as a domestic homicide, sentencing guidelines for domestic abuse should have been considered. There was no psychotic or delusional episode, they argued. However, it wasn't abuse, said the Court of Appeal, because there was no history of violence or control and it was a single incident out of the blue. Well, hang on a minute. Aren't most murders single incidents? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say. And don't most women choose not to report domestic abuse?
0: Again, as far as my understanding goes.
1: But what do I know about these things? Well, certainly less than Harriet Harman MP, who has campaigned on such issues for years and years and is an experienced solicitor. She said of the ruling, domestic abuse doesn't have to be continuous, although it usually is. It can be a one-off homicide. To say it is not domestic abuse when a man kills his wife is fatuous. This is the ultimate, most extreme form of domestic abuse.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's bonkers. It's pretty clear. The words domestic abuse means abuse that occurs in the house in a domestic context yeah yeah in your house yeah Yeah. so I mean why am I saying stuff Harriet Hartman said it all Harriet Wistrich has some stuff to say about this of course as well so you could probably sink that stuff out too yeah
2: hello I am joined on the zoom by award-winning poet potato lover and all-round top woman Holly McNish Holly hello (laughs)
3: Uh, yeah i was trying to remember the potato thing i was trying to remember what it was i said about potatoes it was just that i really liked them wasn't it
2: i think yeah <laughs> you did throw us all for a loop when we asked what your favorite way to eat a potato was and you said soup and we we're all like what <laughs> did i eat what there is no way that's true why did i say that
3: I've just eaten this soup with potato in it. Saying that, I just had that flunch, but it's definitely chips. <laughs> I'll take that
0: back.
2: There you are, there you are. You are forgiven. I've been holding a grudge for like three years now. <laughs> yeah,
3: no
2: wonder. And for any listeners wondering what the fuck we're going on about, Holly was at our Cambridge gig a few years back. Have a listen. It is very funny. It was Holly, Jack Monroe, Liz Carr, me and Hannah. What a lineup! It was great fun. It
3: was lovely in the day when you could go into a venue. Gosh, Brilliant.
2: Yeah. Like, right, okay, we can't just spend the whole time reminiscing. So I am actually just gonna tweak my intro a little bit because the way your publisher describes your new book, Slug and other things I've been told to hate, made me laugh. Okay, it goes. A new collection from the exciting and divisive Ted Hughes award winning poet and author of Nobody Told Me. So I wondered, are you divisive? Do you think you're divisive?
3: I've not heard that before. <laughs> I don't think I'm very divisive, but I think they're probably referring to like a couple of articles about my poetry being seen as very rubbish by some and uh, not rubbish by others. I think that's probably what that refers to.
2: Well, it's definitely not rubbish. Oh, thanks. I wondered whether it was the honesty and the swearing that maybe.
3: Yeah, maybe. I wouldn't say I swear a lot, but I swear. I swear in my head i've been brought up by a father who's lovely swears a lot um it's really part of my sort of language the way that i think so i'd find it weird to take it out but yeah it i forget sometimes that some people are just really put off by this sort of as we call it vulgar kind of language so yeah i guess divisive in that way and talking about stuff that certain people my mum <laughs> <sometimes laughs> doesn't appreciate people talking about or
2: does but finds really yeah.
3: uncomfortable that's probably a better way
2: to put it I can relate to that when I started out as a journalist I wrote sex copy for men's magazines what a what a <laughs> journey I've been on uh, and I remember my mum just going oh Mickey I'm ever so proud of you but can you write about something other than sex please I'm like they won't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They won't let me they won't let me this is my niche <laughs> apparently it wasn't in the that's press so release I have to add it wasn't in the press release it was on a website that said publisher review, and uh, it just made me oh. chuckle because I don't think you're divisive at all. <laughs> oh, I, hope, I hope not, really. Swearing and talking about the topics that you talk about is scary for a lot of people. That's kind of what I took from it. So I am 356 pages in and fully in love <laughs> with Slug, which is a collection of oh, poems, yes. essays, a few short stories covering the huge subjects of birth, death, grief, joy, sex, and. Maybe what some people might find a little bit, ooh, the female body. So (laughs) I'm wanting to know what is Slug to you and how did it come about?
3: So Slug came about basically just from all the poems that I already had. Mm -hmm. Like normally when I've done a poetry collection, it's poems that I've written anyway. Some people write poems for a collection or they'll write a book to be published. Whereas I've normally got the poems, I just sort of write whenever all the time and when my publishers were talking about another collection or another book I realized that loads of the poems that I was writing were about things that people call taboo mm-hmm. I guess from grief to masturbation to yeah as you say like the female body <laughs> any any liquid from the female body any <laughs> anything that's moist the word moist Stephen, um, and I, I'm just sort of sick of it I think so I thought I'd just put it all in the same book. I'm just a bit bored of taboos. And I think as much as I sort of joke about it, like a lot of people joke about, obviously there's like poems about masturbation and stuff, but I think it's really important. And I wish, I wish I'd wish i been talked to about it more when I was younger. And I love the fact that we're becoming more open about these things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just think it's really dangerous. Like I think it's properly dangerous. Some of the things that we find taboo, I don't think it's helping anyone keeping quiet about it and it, don't get me wrong like you saying, finding it difficult sometimes to talk about or embarrassing or I I'm totally like that as well like when I write a poem I'm sitting on my own in a very personal space <laughs> writing it and now suddenly it's like there's this book out and I've got to actually talk about talking about masturbation yeah. rather than just secretly writing it and then you know even emailing itself with people even sort of putting things online you're still not having to talk about it Um, and certain words that I talk about like vulva, people talk about a lot now because we've been so shamed out of knowing what it is or saying the word I still find it hard to say, like I'm definitely not from a background where we've been very open about any of this stuff so I can't believe it's taken me 38 years really to even say that word but I still feel
2: a little bit sick saying it
3: (laughs) which is the the problem which is why I want to write about it more
2: Yeah, I love and appreciate and totally relate to the fact that even though you do talk so candidly about breastfeeding and sex and vulvas and wanking, you still admit to not being fully comfortable doing so. And that's because social conditioning is one hell of a drug.
3: So hard. And even like I think because I talk about it and read poems, people think I'm really open about it. So I get asked by a lot of people if if I want like these t-shirts which say like woman wank too on them or like Um, t-shirts with a picture of the clitoris on it and things like that which don't get me wrong i'm very pleased that these things are being worn by people with the confidence to wear them but it's just not me like i just i'm giving out this idea of myself but as a writer you can you can do what you want and sort of hide behind the pages i was like i can't actually wear a clitoris on my front i like, can't be disowned by everyone i know oh. <laughs>
2: holly would you like these beely boppers that spell out the word vulgar?
4: <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs>
2: But it's so important that you are talking about it. And as with anything with a focus on the female body, slug is joyous and fury making in equal measure. Joyous because we are so kitted out for pleasure and fury making because we are constantly told we shouldn't enjoy it. Totally.
3: It's so infuriating. I feel like I've and I know different people obviously have different experiences, but I feel like I've had this body which I could have like just been enjoying all my life like my body works well it's got loads of good qualities to it but instead of just enjoying it i've been like ashamed of it i've been criticizing it you know whether that's the way it looks or what it does or all stuff to do with vulvas or orgasms it's like oh i feel like society just robbed me of all this like love and yeah. fun i could bit. like i swear to god like our culture owes me so many orgasms <laughs> <laughs> like From my, like, teenage years. Oh, oh, like, just the kind of inequalities and stuff like that. And not necessarily gender. Like, this sort of shaming happens to everyone. Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely, you know, more shaming of vulva than penises. But there's, there's stuff that nobody wants to talk about for exactly the same reasons. I don't think it's just um, just sort of female anatomy. But, um, but, yeah, it's just, I just feel robbed of stuff. And I felt like that to do with breastfeeding as well. Just that, I thought... I could do it fine. There was really no physical problem at all with it. Like, it's cramped a bit. It was just all in my head. And starting to think that all that stuff in your head, like finding things awkward or finding things weird... It's nothing to do with that actual thing. It's just what, what society is telling you. I'm so I'm just so bored of it. I'm just so bored of it. Yeah,
2: yeah. I don't want it to carry on for the next generation. There's a moment, and it's it's fairly early on in the book, but there, it's it's just so incredibly sad. And your granny, who you were like massively close to, and I'm really sorry. I know she died recently. But yeah, the realization yeah. that she had never had any sexual pleasure because you were very open and chatty with your granny about this kind of stuff right
3: yeah so she she spoke a lot about that but not that she not that she'd never had any sexual pleasure like she had she did have but not yeah not orgasm she was talking about like her and it's not all women of her generation obviously but she was talking about her and chat she's had with her close friends in her older years and it was just just told nothing like she had a lovely romantic relationship with my granddad and she loved you know she, she loved kissing and she loved hugging and all that stuff but it was very bluntly put that like oh women don't enjoy sex but I've been told that by quite a few people of her age or slightly younger it's just like, oh yeah just women don't, you just don't enjoy sex it's just not the same and what they mean is like penetrative sex in the way that they you know was all that they were shown was sex which if it, that's all you get I don't necessarily enjoy that on its own either and talking to her and her her and other friends about one generation below sort of saying so many women thinking there was just something wrong with them because they didn't orgasm immediately as their husband basically put his penis into their vagina like that's pretty much what you're told like sex is and that that should have this immediate reaction and not saying that can't feel lovely but the way it's shown I don't think really for most people would would Feel much with that. It's just sad. And I guess that's what, yeah, it's weird talking to your granny about stuff
2: like this. <laughs> There's no but way I've also... spoken to my grandma about stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah.
3: So it was weird though. Like, I don't know, I don't know why. I think because I was quite open and I think I stayed with her a lot. Like, I went to visit her a lot for, you know, months when I was at uni. I would stay with her in the holidays and stuff. And it was just me and her for like a month on our own. So I guess you get talking about things if you're with somebody. But, yeah, that kind of thing. It annoys me how it, it it could be just so simple. Like, it's so simple. Yeah. And all the sort of, especially safe sex I talk about a lot. It's like, we sort of seem to not talk about safe sex. Like, all the rubbing and masturbation and stuff, it's so safe. Like, there's nothing, yes. like, nothing, oh, just nothing bad can come from it. And for hundreds of years, it's been you know we've been making up things to stop people doing it or making like cages to put over boys penises or like or burning clitorises with acid or so like, what? i know i know a lot of it comes from certain aspects of religion and things but it just fascinates me like what we're so afraid of like if we're not of the belief that like self pleasure isn't going to damn you to hell like why are we not being more open about it Absolutely. i get it <laughs> It is still embarrassing for me to talk about, but I really, I really do think it's important just to make it more normal. Like, yeah. Just not shamed.
2: Mm-hmm. I'll be happy. <laughs> when I was reading Slug, it really reminded me of a line in a book that I read as a teen, and this is meant as a huge compliment because I think it was Judy Bloom's Forever, you know, A Proper Rite of Passage. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's yeah, stuck no, it's... with me. And the line is, that's not a bad word. Hate and war are bad words, but fuck isn't. And I think in that context, foot can be extended to cover vulva or pretty much anything around girls and women learning pleasure in our bodies and boys learning about women's bodies too, not just in a heteronormative way, but just in a knowing each other as humans. And yet we're still in this position, still in this position, not just at your grandma's generation, but of women's bodies being these mysteries wrapped in an enigma and parceled up in shame and just we're made to feel shamed
3: yeah and and also sorry my taps go in bang 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 i'm gonna go in there just switch it, just you the it? Tap. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's there's perfect timing for a leaky tap isn't it though
2: <laughs> um, i've never heard it called that before
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah i think the thing that gets me maybe from being a mother in terms of I guess sort of having somebody to practice being open with Mm -hmm. like I I'm under no doubt that my daughter will be embarrassed by stuff that I write about and there's certain things that I have not put in because of that because she's getting older and I don't want to censor stuff for that reason but I do want to be aware that she is going to have friends and might get teased and to be open about what I've been talking about but just being open with her about periods, for example, there's no, like nothing bads come from her knowing more than I did. No. I think that's what amazes me. I do think it would be so easy just to change stuff because when you start being open, nobody goes back to hiding it again. She doesn't care. It's not scarred her that she knows about periods. It's just made her aware of what to do if she starts or if a friend at school starts or, you know... I just don't think anything bad comes from being more open and I'm not t- saying that I've told her everything about sex or about but I certainly have about puberty I think mm-hmm. mostly and also I find it funny like that sentence like oh do you have to talk about this stuff like do you, I get that quite a lot off my mum sometimes and did off my grandma like, oh do you have to Holly it's like well I don't have to like I could write poems about other things things that I find beautiful but I I don't really want to do that until we are all right with this other stuff. I guess it's like with my my friends saying they'd love to not have to talk about race all the time. Of course they would. Uh But until there's no racism, they're not going to. And it's, yeah, there's so many topics like that, I guess. I'd love to write, just spend ages trying to write a poem about, I don't know, flowers, not to belittle nature pose, which I think is a very amazing thing. But it's just not what's in my head. And I write what's in my head and annoyingly, Annoyingly, the word vulva is in my (laughs) head more than the word daffodil. But I don't know why I'm annoyed about it. My vulva's given me a lot more pleasure than a daffodil has, which has also given me a lot of pleasure Uh in life. So it's
2: like, yeah. You mentioned in Slug that Dulce et Decorum S is one of your favourite poems. And when Mm. I was reading it, I out loud went, oh, me too. Because First World War poetry, the verses that come from the front line are, are... definitely what tuned me into liking poetry and being interested in it yeah I, i think your poems come from the front line too of being a woman of motherhood they're visceral they're sexy they're funny they're messy glorious and sometimes it is like a war zone and you have to face things that you don't necessarily want to be talking about
3: yeah, and also I guess I'll I'll take I'll take that as a compliment.
2: <laughs> it's very much meant as a compliment. <laughs> tra-
3: no, no, no. I mean, I'll 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 take it. I'm trying to get better at taking compliments, you know. Rather than being like, no, no, no. I feel like the same thing about the shame, though, also happened to the war poets because they weren't meant to be right in that. Like Wilfred Owen no. was not meant to be right in those poems. The government did not want people, you know, yeah. disheartened about the war, did they? So that kind of thing, I think it's so powerful because it was kind of like sneaking back the truth so that people could hear the truth I think that's why it it got to me so much I think it was such a protest poem and written by someone that actually knew yeah was what he there. was talking about totally yeah
2: I guess that's why
3: I prefer to write about stuff that I know a lot about, I guess. Like, I used to try and write poems about loads of different stuff. I guess when I was a teenager, I thought I knew about more than I think I know about (laughs) now. (laughs) But yeah, it's nice to stick to a topic that you feel strongly about for me.
2: Definitely. I think maybe, like, you know, the war, the, the posters which were Keep Calm and Carry On, and even though that didn't ever make it to, like, the public, that idea of Keep Calm and Carry On, it's basically what women have been told about periods, sex. Lie back and think of England. So, yeah, you are totally, Totally. like, sneaking past the propaganda there, I think.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And also, if you don't think about it, like, if you haven't spent your whole life, like, questioning adverts and stuff, and it does sink in even more, like you say, if we find it hard to see like vagina or or I I can't even say it without saying or whatever but if I find it hard what's it like for a shy 13 year old girl who's no one's spoken to about this you know and it's the same with everything if I'm finding this tricky or like looking in the mirror every single day when I walk past the mirror the first thing that pops into my head is like you look a bit minging you look a bit tired you look a bit ugly you look a bit old you've got you know it's always a criticism Mm -hmm. That hasn't just come naturally. Humans just didn't do that naturally. We've been totally bred to constantly think you're, you know, so ugly or so whatever, wrong, (laughs) not perfect, that you need to buy a load of stuff to fix it. It is so tiring. I look in the mirror and I think, you look rough. And then I think, Holly, don't fall for it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't fall for it. You're a perfectly lovely human. Your face is lovely. It's doing everything that it's meant to be doing, you know shut up and then it's like oh that's even more annoying because now I've had like a five minute argument with myself about whether whether I'm ugly or whether it's society's expectations of me that's making me feel like that and it's like wish I could just like walk past the mirror and just think oh look there I am and that's it
2: (laughs) exactly that exactly that without having to go into a spiral of whether I'm an actually just a really bad feminist for having these thoughts yeah yeah or for, for even looking in the mirror in the first place it it is a, yeah. it's a, it's a minefield and that's why we need books like Slug because I think the most frustrating thing for me about reading Slug was that you weren't there so I could go oh my god yeah I feel Aww. that and actually it feels like a conversation like so many conversation starters I can't imagine any of my mates certainly not any of my female friends who wouldn't relate to it really hard or a lot of my male mates who would be like oh god that's interesting oh shit yeah yeah,
3: i I hope so i hope yeah i think i've tried to it not to be too sort of one-sided about stuff like that because i don't really like it when we act like this is only you know it's only young girls that get these sort of body image issues or that have embarrassing puberty things or are ashamed of certain things I don't think that's true I guess observing lots of primary school kids I think Oof, it's tough for those sweet boys that aren't allowed to cry or talk about their emotions or wear a skirt when actually all the girls are now allowed to just sort of wear whatever clothes they want and yeah. that's still the other way it doesn't really work and yeah that's really nice maybe I should rent myself out to just like sit next to somebody reading the book and like read my own book
2: Yeah, I mean, are we starting a petition? I'm up for this. Like a crowdfunder? (laughs) Something? Absolutely. What I wanted to say about Slug as well is I think it's perfect for anyone who thinks poetry isn't for them. Also, obviously, it's very much for people who love poetry because it feels like, and bear with me with my slightly clumsy analogy, sort of a very sexy poetry maths test in that you're showing you're working out which for me added incredible layers to the poems or helped me get the poems which I mean you're very readable and accessible anyway but just the background as to why you've written this and your thoughts around it just added so much for me I I loved it
3: that's so nice to hear and I wish I'd sent you a proof so that I could have put a very sexy maths test on the front, <laughs> one of the comments. That's like the best thing <laughs> I've ever had said about any of my books, I think. <laughs> you know that makes me so happy because that's basically the reason that I did it, because I feel the same about poetry. I love I love loads of different poetry i love poetry that i don't understand very easily and have to read again and again Mm -hmm. i do love to have some background information about it i really enjoy it more if i'm not sort of i guess thrown in at the deep end and i know some people love that process but i don't really and i guess doing a lot of gigs i like watching poets chatting on stage and i like hearing what they're thinking
2: you just mentioned gigs there and holly uh, i know you've been doing online gigs and posting videos on that their youtube channel but you're going on a real life tour (laughs) hopefully Hopefully. (laughs) obviously everything is caveated (laughs) with a gesture outside the window
3: also i'm pretty sure it's gonna i'm really not thinking things aren't gonna shift back to that soon so yeah i only say hopefully because i've done all the admin for (laughs) rescheduling it five times so i'm sort of crossing my fingers
2: i would like to know where people can find out when you are gigging near them and anything else that you might be up to at the moment
3: so if you just go to www.holly with an ie poetry.com then that's got lots of details of all the gigs and all the ticket links and everything or just follow me on on twitter i'm on facebook i'm on instagram and they're all holly with an ie poetry as well or we'll just i guess google holly mcnish and it's up but i put up the tour poster like once a week at the moment so <laughs> i'm sure you'll get it get it sent to you quite quickly if you follow me anywhere
2: good good and slug is published by fleet on may the 13th and available from all good bookshops which you can now go in and you should go in yeah you should go in. are you going to go and visit yeah. slug in the wild
3: yeah, I think if I was going to say,
2: oh, no, 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 but I will. My, my uh, <laughs> daughter, my mum normally goes in and like orders one in each, <laughs> each oh, so cute. I mean, obviously, I'm going to go in and get copies of Slug and just put Tippex over the word vulva, because I think it's outrageous. <laughs>
3: yeah, it'll be half the book.
2: <laughs> I tell you what, I think I've said the word vulva more today than I have <gasps> in 2020, for sure. Yes
3: honestly i still normal conversation will just use the word fanny but officially blah, blah.
2: holly thank you so so much for chatting with me it's been a pleasure it's been lovely speaking to you thanks
1: Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mix had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column. Um, So this has worked out rather well.
0: Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Julie Geary, writer and creator of New Sky sci-fi series. That's quite hard to say. Intergalactic. (laughs) Thank you for joining us, Julie.
4: No worries. Thanks for having me. I've got to
0: say that I am no expert on sci-fi. So I may say some things here that are stupid and feel free to correct me. I've seen the first three episodes of Intergalactic. I liked it a lot. And I was thinking about the last time there was a big budget British sci-fi series that wasn't Doctor Who. And I couldn't actually think of one, except going back to the 80s, I would say. Am I wrong there or is that correct? And if it is correct, how hard was it to then go about getting one made?
4: I'm no expert either, Hannah, to be honest. My sort of knowledge of sci-fi is very much centered around late 70s, 80s, Star Wars era, Blake 7 era. So um, Blake 7. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, going way back, show me age. I think there has been a gap in the market. That sort of science fiction, big series stuff has been pretty much captured by the Americans. Mm. So. And to be honest, that was part of the thinking when we were talking about making the show, is has, has there been, especially like a big ensemble show like the one we've tried mm. to do. So we did identify a bit of a gap in the market and we certainly wanted one that was female-centric and there hadn't been one of those for a long time, if ever, so...
0: You have written ensemble pieces for women before, obviously. Yeah, I mean,
4: that's, that's my bag, really. That's the, the thing I, I like doing more than ever is a bunch of women in a very, very difficult situation. And, and our girls in this show are in a, in a very difficult situation.
0: They are. Can I ask you what it was about sci-fi, why you thought this story would work especially well as a sci-fi?
4: I mean, I'm quite attention deficit. I get quite bored writing the same sort of thing. And I really want to challenge myself. After Prisoners Wives, I did a show called Cuffs, which was a police show. Wasn't very successful, didn't have enough money, but I learned a lot on it. And I learned that I really like writing action. So I was thinking about what genre can I write? Big set piece of action pieces, sort of stunts and group fight stuff. And then I thought, well, I you know I really liked those sort of science fiction shows when I was younger. I've got a seventeen-year-old daughter; she loves all the Marvel stuff, so mm. I've been dragged along to all the sort of Avengers stuff. <laughs> so we thought we'd give it a go. And, and Sky were actively looking for science fiction at that point, so it was quite sort of serendipitous that me and my partner, Iona Brolic, had been talking about working in that space, and Sky were actively looking for a piece. So.
0: Yeah, I've got a 15-year-old nephew, so I'm perhaps more familiar with Marvel stuff than I than I, I would have chosen to be yeah. otherwise. I just feel the need to say that we've been talking about going back to 70s sci-fi. You know, there's obviously a heritage link to old television. This is not Blake 7. It doesn't have sets that look like they might fall down at any moment. <laughs> it's not that sort of crossroads vibe that a lot of no. the old British sci-fi had. You must be really pleased with how it looks. My question would be, when you sit down and write something like that, how much of that is in your mind and and how much do you just hand over to the people who are expert in that and say, can you make that for me?
4: It's all about conversation. So, I mean, it's the thing, when you're making television, prep is absolutely key. And especially on a science fiction show, you're building a world. You're you're not only designing a spaceship. You know, our show's 150 years in the future, so you're designing everything. And I really... I really like the sort of collaboration so we worked very closely with the production designer Mark Geraghty who was in Dublin we would fly out every couple of weeks to his design studio and work on the ship together he'd do some blueprints he would even make you know we were talking about how big we want the corridors because I wanted it to not feel sort of angular and silver in a sort of traditional science Mm. fiction I wanted curves I wanted it to have an intimacy so he would make a big paper corridor and we'd stand in it and we'd say does this feel the right sort of space and vibe so it was very collaborative I mean it was still an, an, an amazing thing to stand on set that first time and you know you're in a spaceship I mean you're in a car park yeah. in Manchester <laughs> but you were in a spaceship you know and that that was a real real thrill because also he's such a good designer so you touch something it lights up you open a drawer there's bits of old tech in it so it's very very immersive so yeah I mean that was yeah, I'm a lucky old bird that was a really exciting thing as a writer to write something at home in your dressing gown and then 18 months later you're standing in your own spaceship is an absolute thrill
0: I bet If I was going to put this pitch to someone about what this is, or certainly what it starts out as, because I've only obviously seen the first three episodes, (laughs) I would say it was Con Air in Space. I absolutely love Con Air. I have to say, I think it possibly is the most enjoyable film that's ever been made. I think there's probably better films. And I was just curious about whether or not you were a fan, because there are a couple of what I would suggest as possibly nods to Con Air in it. The get up that Dr. Greaves has on her face when she first gets in feels a bit like Steve Buscemi has. Also, yeah. there's a, a soft toy that ends up getting a bit battered and bloody. And can I ask, are you a Con Air fan? Was that there?
4: That was a touchstone. I mean, I have to be very clear. I didn't come up with the original premise of the show. So that was a, a producer called Matthew Reed who said, you know, what about a soft of feminist Conair, so we did we did leap on that premise I mean it, when you talk about Conair, the thing you talk about it is a thrill ride and it's so immensely enjoyable mm. and that that was absolutely a sort of tonal touchstone for us as well as those little nods but I mean there are other differences in terms of sort of Firefly obviously I do go back to Star Wars in terms of the space opera family dynamic that's tucked underneath all but yeah no you are absolutely correct to see those little little nods
0: terrific Mm connor's also funny and it's worth saying that intergalactic is funny in a similar way in a dark way actually let's talk about thomas turgus then because although you have the most fantastic female cast when you have a really big female cast and then you have to have one male actor in there interacting with them So much of it hangs on them and Thomas Turgoose is just absolute, whoever cast him, I have to say, perfect job because he is so ordinary man surrounded by these really large characters, really big female characters and he doesn't do it. He's not playing Baldrick. He's not playing, you know, some guy who's really angry with them. He's just being an ordinary guy. I think Thomas Turgoose is terrific. That was a real...
4: Yeah, I mean, he was really, the sort of, the, the note for that character is who would be the worst person for this to happen to? <laughs> and, you know, that was the note we gave him. And he absolutely nailed that. I mean, it's, it's awful for him. He has an awful time mm-hmm. with these awful women. <laughs> and he played it in a really lovely sort of grounded way. And, yeah, he's, he's a tremendous actor, Thomas Turg. I mean, you know, we've seen him in all his wonderful sort of Made in England stuff. He's a really truthful actor, which is, is lovely because there is a risk. You know, there are there are heightened elements in the show. It's mm. meant to be a thrill, right? It's, it's a Sky One entertainment show, but I didn't want it to be a cartoon. Mm. So what we tried to do is root the, the big characters, but they are rooted in an emotional truth and a real psychology. So we were looking for actors that could bring that, both sides of that. You know, because you're also asking when you're doing science fiction, you're asking a lot of your actors because so much of it is laid on in the visual effects afterwards you know post-production process is huge so they, they are standing you know it looks like a spaceship we've done a lot of the work for them but you're also asking them to do quite big exposing performances and trusting us that we will support them in terms of the post-production and the vfx yeah. so they, they, i was i was chuffed to buggery with the cast i just i was so pleased with them i think they're a yeah. they're a great odd family of characters
0: Yeah, they're terrific. And I have to mention Craig Parkinson because he's a friend of ours and he is just terrific at everything. But yeah, really diverse in a good way because it's set in the future. And the truth is, in the future, we are going to be more diverse because this is a prediction, obviously, that more of us will be of mixed heritage. And
4: that was part of our thinking with it. I mean, obviously, as a programme maker, you want your cast to reflect the world you're living in. It's not good enough anymore Mm. just to have. Are all white cast so and also you know there were certain actors like sharon duncan brewster who plays oh, Tula, who, you know i've wanted to to write for her for a long time so you know there are certain actors that you you want in your show and she's she's just tremendous but you know absolutely with with the casting that was our we did a lot of kind of looking at how the environment will be in the future looking how the population will be in the future so we try to root that all all in truth as well
0: if we can widen this out and talk about science fiction in general, which again...
4: Um, Neither, no experts here, but yeah, will have a go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in many ways, television for women has improved enormously in the time since I reviewed television, which is 25 years. Terrific. It's just terrific stuff written by women out there you know I'm a big fan of Sally Wainwright you know Michaela Cole's doing tremendous stuff Lucy Preble who you must have worked with on yeah yeah yeah.
4: I mean I hate Susie amazing show yeah Yeah,
0: just terrific just so in many ways I think you know things are getting better but on the other hand I think about what happens when or if the next Doctor Who is a woman if (laughs) they replace Jodie Whittaker with another woman and I think At that point, is my confidence that not necessarily, you know, television executives, but, you know, that people are accepting of women in sci-fi. And I wondered how you felt about that.
4: Yeah, I think there is a lot to celebrate. I think we're really naive if we think we can take our foot off the gas. And that's how I feel about it. And that's part of why I want to write ensemble shows, because I want a plurality of female voices and characters. Mm. Yeah, it's still, I mean, it's sort of shameful that our show is being sold on the fact that it's an all-women science fiction show. It's like, well, bloody should be. How many all men science fiction shows have we had forever and a day? So I think with the, especially with with the Doctor Who audience, that, you know, there was a reaction amongst certain sort of elements of the science fiction fandom, but. All the young girls that watch that show, they're growing up. They have huge expectations. Mm. They, won't, they won't let the conversation go backwards, I hope.
0: Marvel has managed to drag... I mean, it's not just Marvel, but Marvel has managed to sort of drag geekiness into the mainstream
4: yeah and I look you know I watched there was a show WandaVision I don't know whether you watched that I, I
0: haven't but I do know what it is yeah
4: that was a really really good show and it was you know I I have certain issues with the Marvel universe but that was that was a really good show with really interesting female characters it, it sort of satisfied the Marvel audience but it was about grief mm. and it was it, it was an emotional show about grief I had all the bells and whistles of traditional marble storytelling so I think things are changing I think I think there's still quite a long way to go in terms of television you know you'd be amazed at how many books and shows I get offered that feel to me like something from the 1980s in terms of you know starting with a dead girl in a field mm. you know yeah. there's still there's still a lot of that stuff about
0: yeah, absolutely. I'm quite obsessed with crime dramas, and not in the way that you would think. When people say that, it's so clear now how they should be written because certain people are writing them a certain way. I think there was yeah. a real that there was a real shift. The BBC drama Five Daughters, which I talk about quite a lot, yeah, I think yes. was a genuine shift in the way that we yeah. looked at crime dramas, and yet. So and many yet. are still written in the old way. I mean, the the investigation, the Danish one about the uh, yeah the, yeah was was totally. I mean, if all crime dramas could be written like that, I would be a very very happy woman. Yeah, really and yet would. that was
4: still that was still, and you had to relax into that show and go. Uh, my expectations. I'm I'm wanting hooks and I'm wanting twists, and yet it was this slow build. How to write from a position of empathy? But that, I mean, that show was a masterclass. Yeah. I just thought it was incredibly moving. And yet it was still, you were still completely engaged and drawn into that story. Yeah. Yeah, it was so, you know, there was no exploitation in that in that piece of work. I thought it was one of the best things I think I've ever seen, genuinely.
0: I agree. So much is, what, like you say... Women. I mean, sometimes it's men, victims of stuff. Yeah. Just, that's just a dead body. Let's just move on. And you're like, yeah. that's not That's not how, how life is. I think Unforgotten is incredibly good at reminding people yeah, that yeah, the victim yeah. is uh, a real person. Yeah. Can I ask you what you're going to write next? Is there something you can tell us about? Is there something in the pipeline?
4: I'm talking with my partner, Iona, that I worked on this with about a show set in the West Country which will be about a female neuroscientist with quite an extraordinary outlook and power. So it's a kind of... I'm in. (laughs) Yeah, it's about about mad women in their late 40s. I wonder why I'm writing that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm interested in writing for actors who are my age that bring a lot of experience and energy and power. I'm interested in this sort of part of life for women and I think yeah we, we've got we've got a show bubbling under there that I'm I'm quite excited about.
0: Oh that's terrific as someone who has spent the last year wondering is this existential funk because I've been shut in my house for a year or is this existential funk because I'm 47 that certainly sounds really interesting because that's you know half the population goes through that and it's yeah. so rarely yeah. talked about so for yeah, so and really also, you know,
4: as a writer, you also you want, you know, on a purely sort of selfish level, I want to write for the best actors, and some of the best actors are a little bit older because they bring it all; they bring all that experience and all that talent and oh. all that life stuff.
0: Absolutely, I was really miffed. I'm not going to name who wrote it because I'm not, but I was really miffed by a review in the Guardian of Kate Winslet in Mayor of East Town mm-hmm. that said yeah. that this might be her. Defining role, if indeed it is possible to have a defining role at Kate Winslet's age. And I just thought, are you kidding me? Sarah Lancashire, Nicola Walker, yeah. Anne Dowd, so, Mark, Mark yeah, and Martindale, yeah, yeah. so many women that really hit their yeah, stride yeah. in their late 40s, early 50s that... I find that a really bizarre way to review television, I really yeah, do. Yeah, but,
4: but that goes back to what we're saying about, you know, it, are we in the golden age yet? And we go, well, we're, we're not quite. If, if people are still saying it's appropriate to write something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know,
4: that's a real shame, isn't it? It but is. Because I, all those actors you just name-checked there, I would give my eye teeth to have them in my show because <laughs> yeah. they... Uh, They're amazing, yeah,
0: absolutely. Julie, this has been really interesting. Thank you ever so much. I would advise everybody cracks into into Intergalactic, which I think is coming out in one. You can watch them all in one go,
4: drop it as a box, they say. So, yeah, first episode is coming on Sky on Friday the 30th, nine o'clock, Sky One, and on now. But they are going to drop the full eight episodes that day. So, if you're in a bingy mood,
0: how do you feel about that as a writer, the idea that someone could go through it in a
4: weekend? Really weird. As a viewer, I love it because you can get stuck in, get some good snacks, set yourself down. Yeah. As a writer, I'm like, yeah, it feels a bit weird because we've worked on this show for four years and then sort of, by the end of Friday, oh, it's over. Yeah, yeah. You know? and that's, that's quite an odd feeling. It's like, oh, that, that's that, that's that done then. Yeah, um, I,
0: I agree. I think it's really hard not to. I have no self-control. So I used to find that I would wait a year for, say, something like Orange is the New Black and then do it in a week. And then I'd be like, I've got another whole year now. Next time I'm going to hold off, I'm going to watch it in a sensible fashion and I never do.
4: Yeah, I still remember I'm old enough to do the whole thing of like Wednesday night was HBO night. So that thrill when the Sopranos theme tune kicked in and you were just, like, oh, here we go. And, you know, that is... I would love to have that sort of feel that people hear the theme tune and get a bit giddy and a bit excited. But, yeah, maybe the are gone. I don't know.
0: I agree. I think all of the stuff that I like best or I've liked best in the last, say, 10 years has been the stuff that I've been forced to watch week by week. So, say, for example, Mad Men, which was never released in a big bunch, Uh, The Leftovers, which I completely adored because I had a whole week to wonder what was going to happen or to think about where they'd left me. It's a bit like people yeah. watching Line of Duty now at the minute, of yeah, yeah. where they've been left. And I feel in many ways it's not more enjoyable because that's not the case, but I think it it, it makes you sort of think about the depth of stuff and it makes things yeah. land way more than perhaps yeah, they would if I you just play that.
4: I feel that, but you know, Mr. Sky made the decision. But yeah. there we go. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for people like me with no self control. Because <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have to say, I watched all three episodes bang after each other of Did you? The oh, weekend. Well, that's great. And if there'd that's been cool. more, if they sent me more, I probably would have watched more. So, yeah, um, I, I have no self-control, so I can't judge. Julie, where can people find out more about you? Are you on Twitter?
4: No, I'm I, I'm a writer with no self-control and a dreadful procrastinator. So I, had to make, <laughs> I had to make a very active choice not to do that because I will do anything rather than write. So yeah. um, I had to just step back so yeah there's not a lot to know to be honest you're
0: a smart woman hi me again just to say that as julie states in our interview intergalactic started on friday on sky one it continues every friday on sky one and is also available as a box set on the streaming service now
1: (laughs) You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we deliver a swift left hook to the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. And of course, I am referencing Irish boxer Katie Taylor, who successfully defended her world titles from a challenge by Natasha Jonas at the weekend. Taylor was and remains the undisputed lightweight champion of the world, which means she currently holds all four of the major world boxing titles, the WBA, WBC, IBF and WBO. And she won the unifying WBC title as well as the inaugural The Ring, that's some sort of boxing magazine I believe, female lightweight title in June 2019 after beating Belgium's Delphine Persoon. I don't think the result against Jonas, who's a British boxer, was a massive surprise. On paper, at least, Taylor had to be the favourite. But Jonas certainly gave the 2012 Olympic gold medalist and five times world champion a run for her money. And that's different to being the world champion with the belts, because those are professional titles and these world championships are amateur. I know, confusing. At the fight at the Manchester Arena Jonas landed some hard shots to put Taylor under pressure but Taylor was ultimately the faster of the two. She still won on a unanimous points decision but she said she had to dig deep. It was by all accounts an epic bout and one that we could see replayed in front of a crowd if Jonas challenges Taylor to a rematch. Over to another great woman. I know I talk about her all the time on this podcast but I do think she's ace which is weird for someone as vehemently anti Chelsea as I am on the men's side of the game but there you go football doesn't need to be so tribal and she's bloody well at it again and of course I am talking about Emma Hayes of course I am Hayes has led her team to an historic Champions League final after a 4-1 win over Bayern Munich to give the West Londoners a 5-3 aggregate victory as you may be able to tell from the score lines I've just mentioned, but I, I will tell you anyway in case your mental arithmetic is as slow as mine. The Blues trailed by two goals to one after the first leg in Germany. In the home leg, Frank Kirby scored a brace, that's two goals, one of which came late in the day along with Pernil Harder's offering to put Chelsea through. G. So Young completed their haul. It's a big deal, is this? The only English team to have won the Champions League are Arsenal back in 2007. In fact, they're the only English team to reach a final in the competition. And Hayes was, in fact, on the coaching staff at Arsenal at the time of that win. Manchester City have made it to the semis twice. Birmingham City once. Arsenal five times. And, in fact, Emma Hayes herself has taken Chelsea that far in the tournament twice as well. So it does mean a lot. They'll face Barcelona in the final on May the 16th and... If this was the men's game, I, you know, would have thoughts about that. But to be honest, I think, you know, I think it really is very open. But it's also a big deal because not only is Hayes in contention for a victory here, Chelsea currently still have a quadruple in their sights as they are second in the domestic league by just a point at the time of recording with a game in hand and they have a fifth round FA Cup tie yet to play in this year's much delayed tournament and they've already won the League Cup. Now that is quite a lot of matches still to get through. I'm not sure I would want to bet on it at this stage but I'm keeping absolutely everything crossed and again it feels very weird saying that about Chelsea. And that's all for me this week I'll be back with more women's sport next time
0: welcome to Rated or Dated Jen which film that had me unexpectedly agreeing
1: with the health and safety concerns (laughs) of the nominal bad guy did we watch this week this week we watched 1986's top gun written by jim cash and jack epps jr who went on to write such classics as anaconda the film was produced (laughs) by don simpson and jerry Bruckheimer, yes them again and directed by tony scott brother of ridley the film tells the tale of maverick played by tom cruise and his pal goose to a lesser degree i guess played by dr mark green sorry anthony edwards Two US naval aviators. Maverick is ever so good, but ever so reckless. Despite that, they get sent to Top Gun, a special academy for very good pilots, I think is basically what that is. Mm -hmm. It's funny that they don't pronounce it Top Gun in it.
0: They pronounce it Top Gun. They put the emphasis different than the rest of the world took the emphasis from. I hadn't even noticed that. I was
1: probably too busy pouring bleach in my eyes. Mm -hmm. They go to Top Gun and they all have to compete to get their name on a plaque saying they're good. Maverick wants to win. So too does Iceman, played by Val Kilmer. He's also very good, but he loves procedure. (laughs) He just loves it. But Maverick is so reckless, he doesn't even wear a motorcycle helmet. So you can guess how those two get on. Mm. Somewhere in the background, not that far back to be fair, there's a subplot for the ladies in which he successfully woos Charlie, his teacher, shall we call her, Mm. played by Kelly McGillis. Also, Maverick's dad was very good at flying planes but died in mysterious circumstances and so he's ever so sad about that too and I expect that's probably why he's such a bell end. The film was a box office smash. In fact, it was the highest grossing film of that year which is probably why they're on the verge of releasing a sequel, Maverick, this year, I believe. But it was not, critically speaking, a success and we'll no doubt talk about that in a minute. In fact, Rotten Tomatoes gives it an approval rating of 56%. One thing we can probably all agree on, however, is that the soundtrack is absolutely banging.
0: Can I opt out of that <laughs>
1: statement? <laughs> there is a bit in it where they play Take My Breath Away, the, uh, the main theme by Berlin, which won both the Golden Globe and the Academy Award that year, where they do like an instrumental of it and it just sounds like an eight-year-old on a Casio keyboard. It's, it's brilliant. <laughs> While we're talking about the soundtrack, I would just like to tell you a very brief anecdote, if I may, which is about one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. I was once in a town called Lexington in Virginia, which appears to 100% exist as like a dedication to Robert E. Lee. It's a very strange mm. place. But there is also... I've been there. Have you? Mm. And there's, so you will know there's also like a military college there, basically, which yep. I think is named after Robert E. Lee, in fact. Or it was. <laughs> I, bet, I bet, bet not for long. Well, the highway into it is the Robert E. Lee Highway. Mm. So, and that is also his final resting place is there. Anyway, I was in a bar in Lexington, Virginia, and two men in those white naval uniforms walked in as Highway to the Danger Zone was playing on the speakers, and it was just chef's kiss. Brilliant. I bet. This film as I recall, was wildly popular with men I knew in my late teens and early 20s, and people seemed to wear aviators quite a lot at the time as well. I'm not sure what gave it a new lease of life in the sort of late... 90s early 2000s but regardless I had never actually watched it before. Hannah I don't think you had either had you? No I had seen it before I saw it when I was a teenager I saw it at the cinema. It is nonetheless incredibly famous and infinitely spoofed and so I was wondering Hannah what is your favourite Top Gun spoof? Oh I don't know to be honest. Recently
0: Ghosts did a spoof of the volleyball scene (laughs) which was which was quite funny because Julian, the character of Julian, doesn't have any pants and trousers (laughs) on it because he died having sex in ghosts, so he doesn't have pants and trousers on. This is played by Sam Farnaby. So every time he jumps up in it, you don't see his business, but you know that everybody else does. And the whole way through it, everyone just keeps going, oh!
1: Um, And it's lots of fun. But yeah, there's loads of them. I think I've seen hundreds of them. It's probably quite apt as well for that particular scene that he's got his... um... Yeah, yeah bits out
0: I mean I have to say just for the listener
1: Jen and I are both doing this topless (laughs) it's such a weird scene but anyway so 10 minutes into this I was so fucking bored that I wikipedia'd the plot to find out like what was happening and whether or not I was supposed to be interested and at that point I discovered that Maverick and Goose's real names are Pete and Nick and I just thought what a different film this would be if we'd used their actual names my dad had a friend called Pete mitchell which
0: is maverick's it name is. and he was a painter and decorator and he was the least dynamic person i'd <laughs> ever met in my life did people oh, always that to make me laugh that that was no they didn't i don't i missed opportunity yeah i don't think any of them were were necessarily top gun's
1: audience maybe it would have been different for him if he'd been called maverick maybe it would have been maybe... a case of like nurture rather than nature you know yeah absolutely But yeah, if if we'd just been calling them by their names, it would have been like, I'm I'm just off to play volleyball with Simon. (laughs) Don't worry, David, I'll help you land the plane. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah, Hannah, Hannah. Yes. Talk to me, how did you feel about this film?
0: Yeah, I mean, I hated it. It's fun in that it's fun to take the piss out of, in that it's bad and bad films. But yeah, I mean, it's really, really, really toxically just... I mean, it's basically the 1980s, encapsulated isn't it it's like harold faltermeyer jerry Bruckheimer, tom cruise and american exceptionalism all just like squished together it's basically the 1980s as a film i didn't hate it the first time i saw it but i certainly didn't respond to it in the way that a lot of girls my age seem to how but that's... old were you do you think how old
1: were you 1986
0: i'd have been 13 something like that okay and Tom Cruise has never really done anything for me. I, I find him. I find him kind of funny looking. Actually, I don't understand why people think he's attractive. But as a grown-up watching it, I have to say that I hate to come across as a joyless taxpayer. But I'm, I'm entirely <laughs> with everyone who's like, what? you aren't risking people. That's the people's,
1: best bit. That's the best bit.
0: You're risking people's lives. You're risking money. You're risking like everything. Why? And at one point, Goose says to him, "You fly like you're flying. You're flying against a ghost." About his dad, and I thought, "He doesn't. He just flies like he's a cocky <laughs> shit." I really, really, really don't understand. The biggest mystery is to me in this film is what the fuck Kelly McGillis sees in him. What oh, her no, character
1: sees in him at all? It's amazing.
0: I would understand that maybe if you did that job and there was a new class through every year and you were like, hey, look, there's some young blokes that are hot. Maybe I'll fuck one every year. But the idea that she actually <laughs> loves him, it's just, I think that's a really interesting point that she's five years older than him. Mm. I don't know how older, much older the, the character's supposed to be, but Kelly McGuinness is five years older than Tom Cruise. Yeah. So I, I sent you the intro that it says on Amazon. Uh, about, uh, <laughs> about well, I can't remember what it was now, but it's about an older woman. And I suppose in one way, I think it's co- kind of interesting that like it's actually quite rare for, or certainly was in the 80s for women, like the female lead to be older than the male lead. But on the other hand, I don't think her age is the thing that makes that relationship interesting. It's the fact that she's his superior that is what makes it interesting, That that she's essentially his boss in a lot of ways. And he has no respect for her. And yeah. he, he behaves like a child. When she criticises his work, mm. basically, he has a temper tantrum. Oh, you said a mean thing about me. It's ridiculous. What she sees in him is, is an yeah. utter mystery to me.
1: When I was watching this film, I basically thought, like, this is why men think women like catcalling and shit like that, isn't yeah. it? Because his method of wooing is like Neil Strauss on steroids and for anyone who doesn't understand that reference i'm talking about that twat who wrote the book the game mm. with all the peacocking and, and things like that uh don't look it up it will only make your face very sad but the bit where he like initially tries to woo her where they're singing to her there's like a hundred men standing around this one woman yeah. shouting at her basically yeah. then he follows, he follows her, her into the, the toilet, toilet yeah.
0: to harass her further but You've missed something, because earlier they've actually had a bet on who can pick up a woman and fuck her in the bar. Even though he's got a wife, hasn't he, Mm. Goose? Yeah, but they've actually had to put a bet on it, yeah.
1: Oh, that didn't even occur to me as I was watching it. And then, when he turns out to be her student, he, like, mansplains to her and deliberately undermines her and basically humiliates her in front of his classmates. And that made me really sad, because I thought to myself, poor fictional Kelly McGillis's character... How many times must that happen to her? Mm. Yeah. A lot. Yeah.
0: I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking of the pub, there's also a bit in it where Goose basically plays the one yeah. ver- <laughs> the one verse he knows of Great Balls of Fire again and Do again you know and others? again and again in the pub. And I thought, if I was in that pub, I, I hate to sound like a miserable bastard, but I'd have gone over and said, uh, can you give that a resume? Like it's been going on for five minutes, you don't really know the song. You've just done one verse of the chorus over and
1: over and over again. Yeah, I'm not sure what his character's supposed to be. Like zany. Is that what he's supposed to be? I yeah. I mean I
0: don't know that any of them really have a
1: character as such, do they? They just have a name and Maverick's cocky, Iceman's senselessly aggressive about the taxpayer. Yeah. Um, no, like I say I'm with him that's like the best bit when he's oh the taxpayer it's just like oh, the
0: best bits where sorry. he decides to say he's sorry for Goose's death but basically just inhales <laughs> really weirdly every time he starts a sentence like he's smelt a fart like he's just gone <laughs> like that and then he says something and then he goes and then says something again
1: it's really weird it's really weird is that supposed to convey that he's Finding it difficult to connect with his emotions.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether it's just something weird Val Kilmer did. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, the big question for me is: Is Val Kilmer and
1: what's his? Is he called Wolfman? There is someone called Wolfman, but I can't. Yeah, are they remember. a couple? Oh, oh, well, he's his wingman, isn't he? I know, but there's there's
0: some real like. Ho- I mean, oh, this... I know. I know. Top Gun is full of homoerotism. Yeah. But basically we're at the start. Wolfman always sits with his arm around his chair like a man would his girlfriend in those days. I feel like that a was odd. quite a
1: ni- an 80s vibe. I feel like I've seen that in quite a lot of films where they're like oh, okay. in gangs and they're kind of like this is how we hang out with each other in gangs like we're sort of cuddling.
0: But yeah, that I think the thing about like going back to the sort of the toxicness of it. There's a bit where they're they're on a flying mission obviously when they're training yeah and one of them says i must be close i'm getting a hard on and it's it's funny because (laughs) i think in in other circumstances that line could be hilariously funny like it actually could Mm. be hilariously funny it's the sort of thing that actually if a mate of mine said it to me about something i'd probably laugh but because it's like it's delivered in this utterly sort of joyless way in this really man-heavy macho environment, it just sounds fucking horrible. It's just horrible. Everything about it is just horrible. That
1: line would be funny in a spoof of this film. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely,
0: yeah. absolutely. Oh there's a there's a bit. Actually, going back to what our favourite bit is, I think my one of my favourite bits is when the guy says to him, "When Maverick does something stupid." And he says, you're on the front page of every newspaper in the English-speaking world. And I thought, come on, not the Daily Express, surely. That still <laughs> would have been the weather or Princess Diana. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And and also the question of whether or not like Maverick is a good pilot. Because everyone goes on about what a good pilot is. But twice he flies through jet wash and causes an accident. Yeah. Twice he does it. And they go, no, it wasn't your fault. And I think, well, they literally said he flew through jet wash twice. I don't even know what that means. I think it means something about, like, when another plane sort of takes off, all of this sort of air is sucked into like their a vortex. Yeah, engine. So it kind of creates a sort of bubble. Where that will prevent air going into the other person's engine. That's my guess. I'm curious to know what the sequel's about. Is he like flying for Ryanair now or something? <laughs> so I did look at
1: this. It's got an alright cast. It's got Miles Teller in it. As... It's got John Hamm in it. I know that. Yeah. Much. And also Tom Cruise and also Val Kilmer. It's about the son of Goose who. As we all know, he dies. Spoiler alert, in case you didn't know that. I knew that and I hadn't even seen it before. I don't even think it should be a spoiler alert. It's quite an old film, isn't it?
0: (laughs) But pilots also have like one of the highest death rates of of almost any group in the military. Because, you know, in the First World War, they were the most shot down and Hmm. died. And in subsequent wars like Vietnam they were the most represented in prisoners of war i think yeah i think if they got through this film and someone hadn't died in it it would have been a
1: bit a bit weird to be fair if they're all up there fucking you know not caring about the taxpayers money then it's there's no wonder yeah absolutely absolutely. i'm (laughs) gonna write a letter to my senator about it i really am but yeah so i think it's about his son who now is doing the same thing and maverick is teaching at the college okay sounds Great. It sounds it's, dreadful doesn't it? It I sounds think it's abs- largely the same as the first one is is what I'm taking away from that description. Yeah, it um, sounds
0: absolutely dreadful. Yeah. I mean also I have to say this film is probably like the greatest example of those absolutely terrible sex scenes that you get in films that I only ever refer to as soft focus misery position sex it's just awful it's so fucking cringy Watch
1: that image out of my brain (laughs) (laughs) this is worse to be fair there's a scene where they're both on the bike kissing which I think might have been spoofed in a Kanye West video anyway and it is repulsive yes like, it's it repulsive is. Yeah. they look like yeah. they haven't eaten in months it is disgusting like... and he's much higher than her
0: which is ludicrous because of course <laughs> kelly mcgillis is actually taller than tom cruise they've obviously dug a hole for her to stand in so uh, <laughs> so that that isn't obvious yeah i just i just yeah i hated it I
1: really, I really hated it. I didn't even enjoy it in a kind of ironic way. So, I mean, we've answered the question, haven't we? But Hannah, I'll ask it anyway. Rated or dated? Right, right. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> dated.
0: Yes.
4: Dated. Yes, yeah. I agree.
1: I agree.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll try harder next time. No, I mean, it was a good choice because I think people will disagree with us. Because again, I think that there are people who will just love this either because it is so stupid or because they like hot shots, part deux, (laughs) whatever.
1: Which I loved.
0: Yeah, or because, yeah, just leave it at that. Just because. Nostalgia, exactly that.
1: What are we watching next week? Next week, it's Mickey's pick and we are watching another film I've never seen the whole way through, which may surprise you, Selma and Louise. Have you not? No. I think it's going to be less masculine than uh, Top Gun.
2: (laughs) Standard issue for all women.